Well, while I'm sure that Solomon would have liked I Can't Get No Satisfaction, because it's a great title for Ecclesiastes, I'm not so sure about Time is on My Side. I say this because in Ecclesiastes 3, the wisest man alive knows full well that time isn't on his side. And not only is time not on his side, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 is not altogether pleased with the God of time and the way he works in time. He's rather frustrated and rather disgruntled about not only time and how it works, but even how God seems to work in time. And so today what we'll do in Ecclesiastes 3 is we'll talk about the tyranny of time. The tyranny of time. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 1 to 15. And before we jump into things, just a couple of reminders that might help you as you work through Ecclesiastes and and I hope help you even this morning. One reminder would be uh, regarding the the perspective of Solomon. Uh, Solomon seems to be writing Ecclesiastes from the perspective of someone who is very, very, very wise. He's famous for being wise in the Old Testament. People would travel from far away to hear and get his perspective. So he's writing from a very wise perspective, but he's purposely writing from a perspective, uh, the perspective of someone who, who does not have interpretation of what he sees from God. He's doing that on purpose. He's purposely writing and seeing the world through the lens of someone who is a theist, who believes in God, but doesn't actually have God telling him the truth about the world around him. Uh, And and to put it in theological jargon, uh, he doesn't have special revelation. He doesn't have the Bible. He doesn't have God through Moses, God through Jeremiah, uh, Jesus. He's just doing his best to see the world around him, applying his wisdom and drawing conclusions based upon that so that when we get to the end of the book, we're ready and desperate in need, desperately in need of God's perspective on everything. And so this journey can be somewhat dark along the way because we're seeing what life looks like from a very, very wise perspective but one without God's interpretation, divine interpretation. So remember that um, he's a theist, but he's rather naturalistic. And then another thing that might help you as we work through this today, and even in your reading of, of Ecclesiastes, is just to know that, that, that it is a difficult book to interpret. Some things in the Bible are really easy to understand. Uh, other things in the Bible are, are difficult. Peter even says some things are difficult to understand. And Ecclesiastes is a challenging book. And so what I tend to do is try to remember the big picture. I try to remember the the key guiding principles of the whole book that are set out for us. For example, in chapter 1, verse 2, if you just turn over a page and look at chapter 1, verse 2, this is something that's repeated again and again and again throughout the whole book. It's what we might call a touchstone or a guiding principle. really helps me as an interpreter. It should help you as well. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So keep that in mind. Futility of futilities. All is futility. It's a, it's a cry of desperation. And it goes from the beginning of the book to the end of the book till we get to the very end. And so remember that. And just so you know where I'm coming from a lot of times, uh, having acknowledged it's a difficult book to interpret and we might not agree on every little nuance of things, um, I'm always trying to go back to that 
And I do have to tell you, that does give me somewhat of a, somewhat of a pessimistic view of things. Okay? I think, I think he's being pessimistic. If he concludes that everything is meaningless, as he evaluates everything, I think it's a safe place to go back to. That's the conclusion we'll come to, apart from God's supernatural revelation to help us understand the world we live in, whether it's time or something else. And that'll become important later as we talk about um, the tone and how to interpret certain verses. Okay, let's look at the tyranny of time. Let's look at it from three angles, okay? Here's what we're going to do outline-wise. We're going to look at the tyranny of time from uh, the first angle, which is uh, the angle of observation. Let's pretend like we're on a movie set and we have three cameras. So we're going to look at the tyranny of time from the angle of observation. That's camera number one. Then we're going to look at the tyranny of time from camera number two. Let's call that camera evaluation. Interpretation. Evaluation. Based upon limited information. Too many Asians, I know. Uh, (laughs) Based upon a, 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 a natural perspective. So camera number one is saying, here are observations, here's how the world works when it relates to time. And that's the first eight verses. The following verses, verses 9 to 15, camera number two is evaluating these observations. Not from a Christian perspective, not from a biblical perspective, but from a perspe- the perspective of a very wise person who is an uninformed theist, someone told me this morning. Uh, he, he doesn't have truth from God, but he does believe in God. And then we'll step outside of Ecclesiastes. It's as if we're fast-forwarding to chapter 12, and then we're going to the whole Bible. Camera number three is the hope camera. Okay? <laughs> camera number three is the divine interpretation of things. The true evaluation of things. Full revelation evaluation of things. And that's where we're going to be encouraged. That's where we're going to find hope. And that's where we're going to be able to think distinctly like Christians. Now, if I lost you on the Asians, think of it in these terms. Sometimes when you're watching a film, and you've been watching, 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 and you've seen different perspectives from different characters, and then toward the end, they give you a different perspective. And it makes all the difference in the world. And you're like, oh, you know, I'm so glad I didn't know that. It would would have spoiled the whole thing and I wouldn't have watched the whole thing. It's that third angle that ends up being so important. And I think what Solomon's doing in Ecclesiastes, he's purposely on the movie set with two cameras so that we do see the desperation and we do sense this frustration and and we're we're troubled and and we're, we're bothered and... We're ready. We're ready for the climax. We're ready for the solution that puts all of it together. And it makes it exciting. And so it's good to have the first two. And it keeps us going. And it gets us ready for the solution, which is for God to speak and to tell us how reality really works. Okay? Okay. Let's jump right in. First eight verses. The angle of general observation about time. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what, was, what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. 
a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to loose or lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Probably familiar words to many of you because you've heard them read before. You yourselves have read them before. If you're a child of the 60s, you're thinking of the birds. And uh, we'll just give you time to get those birds out of your head. Every season turn to, you know, it goes like that or something like that. I don't know. Um, I was born in 69, so I didn't get in on the fun in 65 or whenever it was. Taken right from the Bible. They're familiar words to us. They're beautiful words. They're poetic words. It's important that we know they're descriptive words. They are not prescriptive words. It's not telling you how to be a moral person. This is a wise observer saying, this is how the world works. There are these cycles. And when I look at how the world works, I see there is birth and there is death again and again and again and again. And there is rejoicing and there is mourning. Again and again and again and again. And there is planting and then there is harvesting. And then guess what? There is planting and there is harvesting again and again and again and again. And this is, he's describing the ebb and the flow of life and how things turn and how things work. Such is life. Sigh. Now you may have heard these words read before at a funeral. Oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes these words are read at a funeral. I, I looked online yesterday or the day before just to see, and, and you can go to certain churches' websites, and, and they'll give you the options of what you can choose. It's kind of the cafeteria plan, and you can find out what you want to have read. And, and Ecclesiastes 3 is definitely one of those top-rated passages for you, you and your funeral. And it makes sense. It makes sense why these words are read at funerals, because, you know, there's a time for... Rejoicing, this isn't one. This is a time for weeping. Um, there's a time for life, but there's also a time for death. So it makes sense why people choose to, to have this read at their funeral. But here's my question. And I'm not the first one to ask it. Does Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and following, give you any sense of genuine, deep, true comfort. Does Ecclesiastes 3 really explain what has happened? Does it really give you any real answers as to why this person has just died to the point where it's going to comfort your heart? I would suggest to you that I don't think Solomon thinks so. 
I would suggest to you that I don't think Solomon would want Ecclesiastes 3 read at his funeral. Unless, scratch that, unless Ecclesiastes 3 is teeing up the problem so that we can go elsewhere and see the solution to the problem. Because the reality is when we read these verses, we see that there is a time to live and a time to die. It's not really comforting. Unless you've completely resolved yourself to be a naturalist and say, well, then that somehow is good. It's not really comforting. Maybe it's comforting because you've heard it in church before. And maybe you've heard it at enough funerals before to think that this is how you're supposed to do funerals, so it sort of makes me feel good. And, and... But somebody's at that funeral, let's hypothesize. Somebody's at that funeral who's actually reading the words. And, and somebody is there like Solomon in, in, in saying, wait a minute. I, I, this, this poses all sorts of questions. This, is a, this doesn't comfort me. You're just telling me that there's just these cycles that go on and on and this is just how it is? This isn't answering anything, really. I've got bigger questions. You didn't comfort me. You didn't encourage me. And sometimes the rest of us are like, well, I didn't think to ask a question. I just thought that's what you were supposed to do because that's what they had listed on the church website. And it's in the Bible. Now, with that in mind, let's move to the point of evaluation. The second camera then gets turned on. The angle of evaluation, based upon limited knowledge, based upon what the, the, the senses can observe, eyes, ears. You see, because it's one thing to be an observant person. It's another thing to then be an observant person and think long and hard enough about all of this to question it and to make evaluations of it. Okay, it's one thing to say, okay, there's a season for this, a season for that, season for this, season for that. It's another thing to be the kind of person that says, I have a question about it. And let me offer you my two cents about it. And a lot of times those are the kind of people that we don't like. Solomon here wants to be that guy. I think he wants us to become that kind of man and that kind of woman. Yes, it's going to take us to dark places. So that we're ready to see the light. He doesn't want you just to sit there and be okay with it. Tremper Longman in his helpful commentary says this in response to what we've just read in, before we get to verse 9. Is the world a wonderfully ordered, varied place of joy? Is this really Solomon's point? And he says, verse 9 will give us the answer and it will be in the negative. Look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? kind of out there you're like why does he ask that question keep your finger in chapter three go to chapter one let's let the bible interpret the bible and then we'll reread verse nine of chapter three but ecclesiastes 
one three. Remember, it comes right after one two, and one two is vanity of vanity, futility of futility. Everything, everything is futility. It's all futile. Then the next verse, verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And if he just asks that after vanity of vanities, he's not assuming the answer is positive. And he's in essence saying the exact same thing in chapter 3, verse 9. So yes, I'm reading into it. I'm reading into it the overall context from chapter 1, verse 3. Now I come to 1, 9, and he's saying the same thing. What gain has the worker from his toil? And he expects each of you to be wise enough to be able to answer the question and say, there's no gain. Every season turned, turned. That doesn't comfort me. Well, my my conclusion, my observation is, as a wise person is, you know what? There's nothing. You just die. The evaluation is there's nothing really to be gained. There's no real comfort. I'm suggesting, and I could be very, very wrong. I've tried to be in really good company with others who've studied these things, but that that we really do ourselves a disservice to only look at the first eight verses and we don't look at verse 9. Because verse 9, in context, based upon chapter 1, verse 3, tell us that he's not thrilled about the cycles. He's feeling great distress and anguish about the cycles. Tell me, what's the point? That kind of thing. You know, maybe, maybe, if my angle on this is right and others, this is kind of the example if we take the Bible out of context so often, and here's maybe another kind of example. You know, like maybe maybe the family who 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 are who's biblically illiterate, maybe they've heard a few things, but they they're going to have a new child, they're going to have a baby, and it's going to be a boy, and they think let's have a Bible name, and we you know look for Bible names, and we figure out oh let, let, how about Demas it has a nice sound to it, you know, oh, Demas would be a good name for a boy, and I found a Bible verse that seems to be pretty positive about it. Well, you should probably keep looking before you choose Demas. I mean, the one that would be too easy would be Judas. <laughs> you know, and then they, somebody would give him a memo, you know, and then it'd be like, well, Judas, not Iscariot, <laughs> as if that would help. John 3.16, maybe, a different world. You know, we, we have John 3.16, and we build a whole theology based upon John 3.16, and we don't read it in context in John 3.18, and that kind of changes things a little bit. I could be wrong on this. Tremper Longman could be wrong. Derek Kidner could be wrong. Other commentators could be wrong. But I'm suggesting that when you read it in the flow, 1 to 18, turn, 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 there's a season for everything, isn't really an exciting thing. It's a downer. What's the point? What's the point? It's a bummer. At least from a naive theist. Somebody who doesn't have very much information, but they have some information. Now, he's not a raw naturalist, so he brings God into the equation. Look at verse 10 with me, if you would. Uh, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
And again, we, we could take that out of context and say, well, that, that's kind of a neutral verse. You, you know, at least he's acknowledging God. And, and I'd say, yeah, at least he's acknowledging God. But, but we don't, we have to try to figure out what's, what's his tone there? Is his tone, uh, this is a happy thing, this is a good thing? Or is his tone uh, more of one of frustration? And once again, I would like you to do something I think is important. It's another finger exercise. I know you're getting tired, but uh, hang on with me. Put your finger on that verse, if you would, in verse 10, and go back to chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and let's let 1, 13 and 14 interpret, help us interpret verse 10, and I think we're going to be able to read it with a certain kind of tone, because he's essentially quoting it from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. How about this? Second sentence in verse 13, you don't want to miss it. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And now we see it is an unhappy business. Then verse 14 makes it even worse. I've seen everything that is done under the, under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So take that back with you, carry that with you to chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I'm going to reread it again and add to it chapter 1, verse 13 and say, it's an unhappy business. This is not encouraging. This is frustrating. God has put us in this scenario with cycle after cycle after cycle. And I say, it's all futility. The tyranny of time. But it's not just the tyranny of time. Time is tyrannical. But now that he's evaluating things and he's bringing God into, into the equation, time is a tyrant and God is a tyrant from his limited perspective. If he doesn't have divine revelation to interpret these cycles and to see what's going on, to answer the big questions of why, why death? And so forth. Time is a tyrant. And the God who is the God of time is a tyrant too. <sighs> you could make some pretty interesting uh, sound bites from this sermon and make me sound really, really bad. Uh, <laughs> is what I was just thinking right about now. Because at this point in time, Solomon sounds really, really bad. But it's with a purpose that we can see how richly blessed we are when we do have divine revelation. When we do have God's wisdom weighing in on things. And we're going there. We're going there. Now, continuing on with verse 11, we have a positive statement amidst the overall less than positive tone. Verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And that's one of those verses that causes me to question my take on this as well as the take of others. Because if verse 11 were verse 9, I, I, would, I would probably take it a lot differently. But we've already had the negatives in 9 and 10, and now we have a, a, a positive statement. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Well, that, that, that's absolutely true. And a, and a naturalist or, or a misinformed or, or ill-informed uh, uh, God-believer, can't think of the word, uh, theist, that's the word, could come to that conclusion too. Unbelievers come to this conclusion all the time. Life is beautiful. Life is amazing. 
We cry when babies are born. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. God has made a beautiful world. You can see that from unbelieving eyes even, based upon general revelation. So I, I like it that he makes true statements. Then verse 11 says, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. That's another great true statement. He's put eternity into man's heart. And based upon what he's going to say, it seems that, that he, would, we, he, he would mean that, that there's, there's something unique. Um, I'm looking at the rest of Scripture too to think about this, that we're made in the image of God. We have a desire. We even have a desire for the questions about, you know, why. And, 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 and we, 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 we think differently than the rest of the created order. He's made us in a special way. He's put eternity into man's heart. It's a great way to put it. It's a, it's a great statement. But do notice he says, yet. And it seems to be a, an awfully big yet. So that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And now I think we're back in the negative. Ugh, you know? He's put eternity in our hearts. He's given us these desires to have, to have uh, answers to our bigger questions. But you know what? He hasn't sent us the memo. He leaves us in the dark. He hasn't explained how the, 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 the end is going to end and, and, and how the cycles are ever going to be uncycled or whatever it might be and, and how time maybe perhaps could one day be linear because it all just seems circular. And you get, you, you get the flavor now of, again, this anguish and, oh, he's done great things. How about he made me this way? Why did he then not tell me more? Again, Longman in his helpful commentary says, the verse is yet another cry of frustration on Solomon's part. He goes on in the last part of the verse to complain that God has kept his human creatures from knowing what is going on in his creation. It is as if God is baiting or toying with his human creatures, giving them a desire for something that is well beyond their reach. He's made us rational beings. But he hasn't told us. I can't see it in nature. You know, this is the guy. This is the guy back to that funeral. This is the guy at the funeral who's saying, I've got questions. You gave me observations, which is bring up more questions. You haven't given me answers. This is the guy who hears a pastor like me say, We all know that death is just a part of life. It's just a natural part of life. And he says, I've got questions about that. What kind of God is this? And that guy's the guy we don't like. But we should like. Because a pastor should never, a Christian pastor should never say, ever, Death is just a natural part of life without an explanation, without saying much more. Because that's not a biblical worldview. Death is not a natural part of life. That might be the conclusion if we were pagans and we only looked at the first eight verses. Everything, every season, this is how it goes. But there is something more to it. 
And this guy who's willing to make us all uncomfortable is doing a great job and he's doing a great job shaming shameful pastors. I would like to suggest. Now hold that thought. Hold the thought of, wait a minute. Isn't it true that death is just a natural part of life? It's not true. It's not true from a biblical worldview vantage point from Genesis to Revelation. We'll get there. If not, let's have a riot and remind me. What is God doing? Giving us, making us so we have these questions. He doesn't give us answers. Someone else said, Solomon's compulsive drive to know leads to frustration and exasperation, not rest. Again, the opinion being, this is not like, oh, isn't this great? Oh, yeah. This is the way God made us. Eternity in our hearts. And by the way, he's hidden all the answers. Ah, comfort, comfort. (laughs) No, doesn't seem to be the idea. Verse 12 then says, Here's a tentative conclusion based upon the limited information. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's, that's not an altogether bad conclusion. But it would seem that that's a, a conclusion that's pretty naturalistic. You know, based upon the data that I have, my interpretation of what God's up to, and only my interpretation of what God's up to, without special revelation to help me see it clearly, my interpretation of all these observations leads me to be this kind of person. You know what? Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's have joy. It's the best we can do. It's the best we can do. He resigns himself to this. This doesn't seem to be a point of enthusiasm here. This is resignation. It's all we can do. He seems to feel unfairly treated, and so he's going to go for his best moral conclusion. But it doesn't really satisfy him. And then verse 14 says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Great, perfect, absolutely Nothing can be added to it. We say amen. Nor anything taken from it. Oh yes, preach it, brother. God has done it so that people fear before him. That's all true. But it doesn't seem to be satisfying Solomon. He's just making true statements about God. It's pretty amazing he comes to those conclusions here just based upon a natural revelation kind of conclusion we could go to romans 1 and talk about some of those things we're not going to for the sake of what we're doing here this morning but then verse 15 says that which is already has been that which is to be already has been well that sounds a lot like chapter 1 verse 9 What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And that's back in that context of going, vanity of vanities. 
Again, this isn't a positive thing. That which is, already has been. This is God's doing. And, and that which is to be, already has been. This is God. This is how God has fixed the created order. And, and, and to me, my, my evaluation of it all is, as far as my life is concerned, it's all of futility. I can't do anything about it. I can't get it. I can't get my answers. Answers to my questions. It's frustrating. God's established it and it's going to continue. There's nothing I can do about it. And then verse 15 says, And God seeks what has been driven away. Which is kind of an awkward statement. Even in the original text, it's an awkward statement, so there's lots of discussion about the best way to translate it. And it seems to be a decent translation. It's still hard to understand. What does he mean by, and God seeks what has been driven away? I'll give you some other translations that might help. God keeps on seeking what he has sought before. Or God repeats what has passed away. In other words, the words of Solomon, there is nothing new under the sun thanks to God and the way he runs the world. is how someone gave an interpretive translation. Not positive. We're pretty much locked in. Life and death, life and death, life and death, life and death, life and death. Oh, and by the way, you just die once. Kidner in his commentary summarizes it this way. The earthbound man or woman is the prisoner of a system he or she cannot break or even bend. And behind it is God. There is no escape and nowhere to jettison what encumbers or incriminates him or her. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Desperation. Camera one, this is what's happening in the world around me. It's undeniable. Camera number two, let me evaluate it based upon what I can see and experience. Camera number three, what is God's interpretation, evaluation? What does God say about time? What does God say about life and death and why death happens? Does God say that death will will always be the cycle? We need answers. We need a true knowledge of God. Solomon will go there in chapter 12. A true knowledge of God is the solution. Let's, Let's look at some of those kinds of questions. The angle of full revelation. Just a few of these questions and we'll get things wrapped up. Answering the question, why? Let me pose the question to you. You have a Christian worldview. Most of you do. Why death and suffering? Well, just because. Because that's the cycle of life. And it's a natural part of life, death is. Is that your Christian worldview? Death is just a natural part of life and that's just how it's always been and that's how it always will be? 
That's not your Christian worldview. Starting in Genesis, that's not your Christian worldview because God said, it's recorded by Moses, but God said from the very beginning, if you rebel against me, you will what? You will die. And now all of a sudden we're on to something. We can understand. We, we, we have an interpretation of these things. We don't just have observation and our own naked eye interpretation or how we feel about it. We have God speaking, even giving us inscripturated evaluations. And we know why death happens. Death doesn't happen because it's a natural part of life. Death happens because there's been human rebellion. And God promised there would be death if there's human rebellion. And we could trace that throughout the whole Old Testament. We can tra- and Solomon himself knew about it. That's for sure. Then we could trace it through the New Testament and we would find in, in these high point statements that we cling to like Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin is death. So now if you're that pastor standing up and you have the word of God, you have divine interpretation, you would never, ever, ever think about telling people that death is a natural part of life. You can answer that guy's rude questions that are actually good questions. And you can say, death is because we live in a fallen world due to human rebellion. And you can explain it in all sorts of detail, but you can start with the first Adam. And oh, by the way, then you're setting everything up for a solution in the last Adam. As I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, you can look at the whole Bible as the tale of two Adams. Because we have God's perspective on this. We can explain. And maybe it's not very comforting to know that death happens because of rebellion. In the short run, that's not very comforting, but it's comforting in the long run because there's a solution to the death problem. If you just say it's a natural part of life, you're on the cycle of frustration and you're, you're, you're sowing seeds of more frustration. You're not helping anybody. And I suggest to you, Solomon, what do you want to say? Stop! You've got to tell him the truth. The truth about God, the God who said if you sin, you'll die. And more. Another question is, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing? Is he just cycling everything in a sinister way without letting us know why these things are happening? And that's why I chose to read Ephesians 1 for scripture reading. It's one of those easy ones. It was easy pickings, I have to admit. I didn't have to give it much thought. I was thinking to myself, where is a text of Scripture that helps us in a full-orbed kind of sense? We're going to be short of time. It'll be at the end of the sermon. Where's a great text, full-orbed sense, that, that helps us to see that God is involved in time and God has a plan for time that begins before time begins, works in and through time, and goes in even into the future? It's Ephesians 1. Let's reread Ephesians 1, paying attention to the time, the emphasis on time. Now we have divine revelation giving us interpretation to what God has been doing and what God has done and what God is going to do. It centers in the person and work of Christ. We're included as part of his plan and we can be grateful for that and we can have answers to the questions that would otherwise create frustration. 
And so we begin, look for the time notes, blessed be the God, this is verse three, and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, verse four, even as he chose us in him, maybe it's been talking about time before, but, but now we see explicitly, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ah, interpretation. Divine interpretation of how God works in time that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. Oh, more really wonderful time markers. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, purpose of his will, very time oriented. God has a purpose. God has a will. Ah, we're involved. We've been predestined is a part of that. This is fantastic. This is not frustrating. This is encouraging. Worship inducing. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now we're talking about time and history and what he did in the Middle East. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's a time reference as well. The mystery of his will it hadn't been... Uh, fully revealed in the past according to his purpose that's also time related which he set forth in christ time related how about verse 10 this is what made me think of it first as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined there we go again according to the purpose there we go again of him who works all things how about that all things as it would relate to time in eternity past, in reality now, in the future, according to the counsel of his will. There's more time markers. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him also. You also, when you heard, when you heard, now we're in time as we've known it. So another time marker, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that's with a view toward the future then who is the guarantee that's futuristic time related of our inheritance until another time marker, we acquire possession of it, time marked to the praise of his glory. <sighs> yeah! You know, I don't know how you do worship, but that's how I do it. <laughs> I just want to go. Time makes way more sense when you have God saying, let me tell you how it works. Let me interpret it for you. It's for my glory and honor, the exaltation of my son and my love for you, even before you were born. We need the third camera angle. We're going to come up with all kinds of weird conclusions. Some of them right. But weird conclusions. So thankful. I'm thankful that God has spoken in many ways through his prophets. I'm mostly thankful that in these last days, culminatingly so, Hebrews 1 is going to tell us he's spoken to us through his son. And that would make sense because the son is at the centerpiece of it all. We just learned in Ephesians. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. To understand this, to, 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 to grasp this at least even in a basic way is, is to really understand time and the world in which you live. 
to be quite honest, it's to help you understand time to the degree that you can in the world beyond in which you live. Even in our suffering, even in the brokenness of the world now, Romans 8 talks about that. Another question is, is time going anywhere? Maybe one more text, Revelation 21. Is time going anywhere? If I only have Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8, no. It's not really going anywhere. Because you know what? This is how it's always been. This is how it's always going to be. Maybe karma makes sense. But when I have more than just the naked eye to interpret and evaluate, time's going somewhere. Jesus is leading the march somewhere. We could go to Revelation 22 also, talk about new heaven and new earth, last Adam stuff. But I just wanted to go to Revelation 21, verse 4, because it's the undoing of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. It's a great text to write in the margin of Ecclesiastes 3. And, and Jesus is the, is the one. Look at verse 4. It's so good. He will wipe away every tear. And tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. How about that? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No more death. No more mourning. It's not this vicious cycle circle that never ends without any, any conclusion, any solution. Because of the victory of Christ. And we can know this. Because he is the fullness of God's revelation. Ecclesiastes 3 is not the fully informed story. It's not the Christian take on life. But it, oh, it so wonderfully gets you ready to appreciate the Christian take on life. Here's my funeral text. Please don't read Ecclesiastes 3 at my funeral. Unless I deny the faith and become a pagan and you're trying to somehow convince everybody that this will never end. It's just the cycle. Unless you use Ecclesiastes 3 to tee everything up. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. First John chapter 5, verse 11. And tell everyone who is at the funeral service that Pat has now stepped into eternity. He's met the Lord Jesus Christ and he's experienced the fullness of what it means to have eternal life. Eternal life. And then what do we do? Then we say, time and eternity make sense. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, right? He predestined us. He called us. He sealed us with His Spirit for the day of redemption. And we praise Him for being this great and magnificent and powerful Savior. That's Christian worldview. That makes time not a tyrant, but
but it makes time make sense because we're talking about eternal life in Christ who is the sovereign over time. Hallelujah. You know? Yeah! And, and to that I say amen and I hope you do too. Father, thank you for the richness of salvation in Christ that you, God, gave us eternal life and this life is in your Son. He's the apex of it all. He is the king of glory. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is our righteousness. He is the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. He is our resurrection. He is our sanctification. He is our everything. And because of him and what you've done in uniting us to him by faith, We have the hope of eternal life. And time is not the enemy. And time is not the sovereign. And you are not a sinister God. You are a kind and gracious and loving God who takes away the mourning and takes away the death. And for this we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.